All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning to Grace Community Church, specifically to our continuing study in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. And let's pray together. Lord, we come to worship you today for your goodness. That your steadfast love, Lord, is better than life. Your steadfast love, it never fails us, Lord. It's higher than the heavens, God. And we worship you today. You're a good father to those who have put their trust in you, God. You're a good father. You're good to your people. You're a faithful God. Lord, you're faithful to give your children what we need. You restore our souls, Lord. You restore our hearts, God. You do it for your namesake, Lord. God, we worship you today. And we ask, God, that you would restore your people today. That you would restore us in your presence, God. That you would grant us gladness in your presence, Lord. Refreshment in your presence, Lord. We ask you to be a good father today, Lord. Stand by your word. God, we gather today in the name of Jesus to feast in your house, Lord. To behold the beauty of your perfections, God. To be reminded of your glorious gospel. To worship you, God. We ask that you would tear our eyes away from things of this world today. And that you would speak to your people from heaven. You're a great king, Lord. God, we ask that you would fill this time up with the presence of your Holy Spirit as we give attention to your word. Lord, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin our time this morning reading our text together. We're going to attempt to cover the whole chapter of Genesis 38. This is a long chapter. And I don't want anybody to get lost as we read it together. So I want to invite you to stand this morning. For the reading of the Word of God. Please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord, Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. 
So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, she died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside and he said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet, your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no, no cult prostitute has been here. Verse 23, Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying this one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord to Grace Community Church. You may be seated. All right, I want to start with something that's pretty obvious this morning. That was awkward. Okay? In fact, I will publicly confess that this is the most awkward passage of Scripture that I've ever read in a public worship service. And we have all kinds of awkwardness in this passage. We have uh, explicit sexual immorality. We have wicked sons. We have this weird birth narrative at the very end of our passage. And so there's something, there's something that strikes us as what in the world is going on here. And maybe you're here this morning and you missed the announcement about daylight savings time. So you're getting here, you think we're just getting started. And you walk in and you hear this passage read and you think, what in the world are they doing today? Okay, What in the world are we about to do this morning? How in the world are we about to make a sermon out of this passage of Scripture? What in the world in this passage of Scripture can help me? Okay. So we have the most explicit sexual sin described in all of Genesis in this chapter, several times over. And not only that, there's another problem that we got to deal with. Because, you know, last week we started, two weeks ago, we started this new section in the book of Genesis, the, the, the Joseph narrative. And that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks, Joseph, okay? And if you noticed, the one name that wasn't mentioned in Genesis 38 is Joseph. And so Genesis 37 ends with this dramatic story of Joseph being betrayed by his brothers and sold into the land of Egypt, being trafficked into the house of Potiphar. And that's the end of Genesis 37. And then the beginning of Genesis 38, we zone in not on Joseph, but on Judah. And so on two accounts, we got we got to weigh through what's going on in this passage of Scripture. Why this weird stuff happening? And why Judah in the middle of a section of Genesis that is about Joseph? One of the things I want to make you aware of is critical scholarship, liberal critical scholars, make a heyday in Genesis 38. Okay? And when I say liberal scholars, I mean men and women who devote their life to a scholarly study of Scripture, but they actually don't believe the Word of God. Okay, They have PhDs, but they actually have PhDs in unbelief. It's a massive amount of time that they've spent studying and preparing to know the Word of God, but they will not submit to it. They don't believe it. And so one of the things that's been happening for over a hundred years in critical scholarship is this source theory of the Pentateuch. And it goes like this, that the first five books that we think are written by Moses, they're actually written by several different authors. And whoever put them together took these different sources and patched them together in the books we know as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, Exodus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
And so uh, th- these critical scholars, they're like sharks uh, smelling blood in the water when they come to Genesis 38. And the argument goes like this. Nobody in their right mind can believe that the same author wrote chapter 37 that wrote chapter 38. I mean, come on, nobody in their right mind can believe that. It's obvious, at least the PhDs of unbelief, it's obvious that these come from two different authors and they've been patched together in the book of Genesis and they mock Genesis 38 as nonsense, okay? As nonsense, obviously inserted in in this narrative with no apparent reason. And I want to give us an alternative this morning. Or, or, Genesis 38 is about Jesus Christ. And it makes perfect sense that it would be situated exactly where it is in the book of Genesis. You see, this story sounds weird and, and cryptic at first. But I want to submit to you this morning that this story is so important in redemptive history that if we did not have Genesis 38, we don't have Jesus. That's how important this story is in in redemptive history, in the coming of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 38, it's a good test case for the lens that we have on when we read Scripture. It's it's a perfect test case for what I would call a Christ-centered hermeneutic, a Christ-centered way of reading all of Scripture. Because if you don't have this lens that the book of Genesis and all the Bible is about Jesus Christ, the sum, the substance of all the Father has said, then you have no idea what to do with this chapter of Scripture. You title your sermon, if you don't have Christ-centered hermeneutic, you title your sermon silly things like the biblical stance on birth control, Genesis 38, okay? Or you come with these liberal, unbelieving scholars and say, man, this was obviously inserted. Nobody in their right mind wrote uh, these two chapters side by side. But I want to submit to us this morning, Genesis 38, like every other passage in Genesis, is about Jesus Christ. You see, this is not the story of just any old family, okay? And any old baby that's born. That little baby that's named Perez at the end of this story is the next link in the chain of the royal lineage of Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus were among us today and had access to Ancestry.com and he were to trace back his family lineage through Mary and through his adopted father, Joseph, you would see this little baby's name, Perez. The chosen family, the chosen seed that has been set apart to bring forth Jesus Christ. Genesis 38 is about Jesus. And we're going to come back to that. I don't want to run too fast, too far ahead, because first we got to deal with Judah. Judah in this story. Judah has been chosen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the the lineage of the promise thus far in the book of Genesis. Judah has been chosen uh, to stand in this royal lineage after his father Israel. Jacob and Israel. And so the line of Jesus goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then 
Judah. In fact, one of the names that we know Jesus as today is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the man who has been set apart and chosen by God to bring forth royal offspring. And so Genesis 38 is zoning in in the middle of this story about Joseph. It takes a quick peek back into the life of Judah to trace this setting apart of God for this man to bring forth royal seed, royal offspring. And so Genesis 38 shows us that Judah has been chosen by God. And it shows us something else very important. That Judah was not chosen by God because he was righteous. Okay, He was chosen in spite of his sin, in the midst of his sin. Just like every other sinner we see in the book of Genesis. And so the author has carefully crafted for us this story in Genesis 38 that unfolds the sin of chosen Judah. And that's right, that's where we're going to start this morning. Is on the back side of chapter 37 in the book of Genesis. Judah, the same man in 37, he's the one who concocted the plot that Ryan taught us about last week. Little Joseph is screaming in a hole. He's thrown into a pit, screaming to his brothers, begging to be let out of a pit. And Judah says, hey, let's not kill him because if we kill him, we're not going to make any money. Let's sell him so we can turn a profit off of our little brother. He's the one who hatches the plot to traffic his little brother into Egypt. This is wicked Judah. Chapter 38 picks up with this same man with these words in verse 1. It traces his descent into sin. While his brother Joseph is descending into slavery, chosen Judah is descending into sin. And that's where we'll begin. In verse 1 it tells us in Genesis 38 that he separates himself from his brothers. And he begins to dwell among the Canaanites in a Canaanite town. Okay, And if you know anything so far in the book of Genesis, you know that this is not a good thing. Okay, That he removes himself from the chosen family and he begins to, to be surrounded by Canaanites, the pagans. Not the ones who have been set apart by Yahweh to worship the one true God, but the ones who worship false gods. So he separates himself from his brothers. And what we have here is a crisis in the book of Genesis. That this man who has been chosen to bring forth royal seed, royal offspring, he's in danger of being overtaken by the world. You could call that he's in danger of being Canaanized by the unbelievers. Moves into a Canaanite town. He's going the way of his uncle Esau, the one who separated himself from the people of God. Now, this is a dangerous thing in Scripture. Okay, Removing yourself from the people of God is consistently presented to us as a dangerous thing in the Word of God. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's removing himself from the people of God, the visible church, the, the family that has been chosen by God, the people of God. And he's dwelling among the pagans. 
This is often the first step in someone's life as they begin to drift away from serving the Lord. Remove yourself from the people of God and immerse yourself in the world. This is dangerous in the Word of God. And we need to be warned uh, in, in a fresh way this morning. Be warned. It's dangerous to separate yourself from the people of God. We're told earlier in the book of Genesis that even a righteous man named Lot, this is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us that even the soul of, a, of righteous Lot, as he dwelt among the unbelievers, the Canaanites of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible tells us that his soul was tormented by their lawless deeds. This is a dangerous thing in the Word of God. Judah is on a dangerous trajectory. He's descending into sin. This descent continues in verse 2 when he takes on a Canaanite wife in verse 2. Now, we know this is not good in the book of Genesis. Abraham and Isaac both warned their sons not to take wives from the Canaanites. This was a specific prohibition in the book of Genesis. And not only that, Judah has watched his uncle Esau gather foreign wives in great sin against the Lord God. And so we, we see him descending into sin, taking on foreign wives. Wives, Canaanite wives. Now, let me say this as a sidebar, okay? Just a sidebar comment. When we see this language throughout the Old Testament that forbids marriage, foreign marriage, okay? Listen, this is really important that you understand this because one of the last vestiges of racism in someone's life is ridiculous thoughts, wicked thoughts about not intermarrying between the races, okay? One of the things you have to understand about these prohibitions in the Word of God is they have nothing, zero, nada, to do with race. They have everything 100% to do with religion, okay? These foreign wives were prohibited because they did not worship Yahweh. They worshiped false gods. And the way that we apply this today is not this ridiculous racist idea that we don't marry between races. The way that we obey this principle today is we only marry in the Lord. Those who call upon the name of Jesus has nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. You remember King Solomon as he amassed uh, these foreign wives. Guess what they did? The text tells us that they turned his heart away from Yahweh. That's why it's wrong because they worship false gods and they turned his heart away from the Lord God, the one true God. So in Judah's case, he takes on this Canaanite wife. And, and what we have here is apparently a classic case of lust at first sight. Lust at first sight. Look at verse 2. We have two verbs that describe uh, what Judah did to take his wife. It, it tells us that he saw and he took. He saw and he took. Now that's interesting because those words, when they show up together in the book of Genesis often have connotations of evil, wicked lust. I'll give you an example. Genesis chapter 3, when Eve 
uh, is being tempted by Satan. This is the description uh, of, of, of when she sees the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw, she took. When the woman saw, she took. She ate the forbidden fruit. Genesis 6. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. This is also the language in Genesis 12 when Abraham and Sarah go down into Egypt. You remember this story. They pretend to be brothers and sisters. Pharaoh takes um, Sarah into his household. Same words. Pharaoh saw her. Pharaoh took her. This is the language of lust in this man's life. Lust at first sight, drifting away from the chosen family. His pagan wife is unnamed, and yet she bears Judah three sons in this narrative. Er, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er, Onan, and Shelah. And then we come to verse 6. And in verse 6, we move from the sin of Judah to the sin of Judah's sons. His firstborn, in verse 6, is, in verse 7, is described as wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, we don't know what he did or all of what he did, but we know that this was a wicked man. So wicked, in fact, that we're told God killed him. The Lord put him to death. God kills him. Now, this is language and echoes back earlier in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, to the flood narrative that the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And guess what God did? He killed them all except eight people. And I say it that way for us to be reminded that the God of the Bible is not God as you make him out to be. Listen, we're talking about Six chapters into Scripture, blood is being shed by the Lord God on a global scale because of sin. And so you've got to stare that right in the face this morning. What is God like? Yes, He's a God of love. Yes, He is a God of grace who will forgive your sin. But He's also a God who sees wickedness and puts sinners to death. This is the Lord God. The Lord God. He's not to be trifled with. He's the Holy One of heaven and earth. Judah's second son, Onan, was also wicked. He's also put to death by God. But in order to understand his sin, we need to spend just a little bit of time this morning on this ancient Near Eastern practice that we refer to today as leveret marriage. Okay, leveret marriage. And what this meant in this culture is that when a husband died in this culture, childless or sonless, a family member of that dead husband, this was the custom, would go into the wife in order to raise up offspring for the dead husband. And some of you, if you needed a a chance to be thankful this morning of the discontinuity between covenants as we move from old covenant to new. Let's just start right here. Praise God, we ain't doing this anymore. Okay? We ain't doing this anymore. So this was the custom in the ancient Near East. And all this was, uh, was to perpetuate the name of that dead husband. 
to perpetuate his name, that his name would not die, that his name would go on. Now, several centuries after this story in Genesis, this practice, this custom, would actually be regulated by the law of Moses. So this is actually in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. Turn there with me really quick. And this is an extended passage on leveret marriage. But I'll just start with that, with that first verse. Je, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And that word duty is actually mentioned again in Genesis 38, verse 5, that this was his, he was to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. The duty of a brother-in-law. So listen, okay? What he did was so evil because of this background, right? What he did was evil because of this background. He went into his dead brother's wife, but he removed all possibility of her getting pregnant. The whole point of this whole thing was so that he would raise up offspring for his dead brother. But here's the thing, that that child that he was to raise up would have outranked him. That child would have taken on the rank of his dead father. He would have been the firstborn. The right of the firstborn would have likely gone to this child. And so, he, so he's wicked. So he's wicked. He doesn't, he doesn't want to, to raise up offspring for his dead brother. He wants to be the firstborn. But listen, he's double wicked because he doesn't just say, you know what, I'm not doing that. I'm not performing that duty of a firstborn. And we actually have language in the law of Moses that if a man refuses to, to perform the duty of a firstborn, there's like this ancient cut down in Israel. Let him be the one who's had his sandal removed. And there was this custom, you know, this formalized custom that, you know, he would be uh, spit on and his sandal would be removed. It would have been a dishonor to this man for not performing the duty of a brother. And so he doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, you know what, I'm not doing it. He pretends like he's willing to do it. This is what makes it so wicked that instead of loving his dead brother, he uses his dead brother's wife for sex. That's what he does. He's a wicked, wicked man. And the Lord kills him for his sin. Firstborn, secondborn, wicked before the Lord, now killed by God, killed by God. And Judah, in verse 11, he shows more worldliness in verse 11. People that know God are supposed to connect these things. They died in their wicked men and the Lord killed them. Judah fails to make that connection. That these sons were killed because they were evil in the sight of the Lord. And instead we see him take up superstition. 
He superstitiously blames Tamar that there's something, you know, cursed about this woman, that my first son was married to this woman and he died. Then my second son was married to this woman and, 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 and then he died. And then all of a sudden he's got one son left and he's, say, he, and he's saying, I'm not giving this, this last son to this woman. He's not making the appropriate connections. They haven't died because of Tamar. They died because of their own wickedness. And so what Judah does towards the end of this paragraph is he betroths his youngest son Shelah to Tamar, but he waits for a later date. He says, I'll give him to you when he's grown. And then he sends Tamar back to her father's house. Now, at this point, we have to know these major themes that are running through the book of Genesis or we'll, we'll miss the drama in this passage. There's a crisis right now in Genesis 38. And we need to understand these themes to understand this, this story. And so many times over, you've heard myself, you've heard Ryan mention this, that Genesis is wrapped up in seed theology. Seed theology. That if you don't understand the theme of the seed, you'll never understand the book of Genesis. And what seed theology is, is beginning in verse chapter 3, verse 15, is in the middle of judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent. God announces mercy and salvation to Adam and Eve in the form of a seed, an offspring. The offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. Everything else in Genesis is revolving around this seed theology. The, ge the genealogies are tracing this chosen seed from generation to generation. That seed promise reappears Several different times in the book of Genesis. Beginning in chapter 12, the seed promises zone in on Abraham and his family. And in Genesis 15, those promises are specifically made to the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 15. These promises are extended to Isaac and Jacob and their seed in Genesis 26 and 28. And so we have the, the seed theology is, is being wrapped up. And as the story of Genesis progresses, the, the seed, the promises go forth. The seed is being traced through genealogical lines. And one of the literary features that we see over and over in Genesis is this chosen family that's supposed to bring forth the seed is put in these crisis moments over and over again. Seed in crisis. So I want you to think about how many times have we seen this in the book of Genesis? So they're expecting this chosen offspring, Adam and Eve, first son born. He's a righteous, he's a righteous man. His name is Abel. He has a wicked brother named Cain. His brother cuts him down. He's dead, dead, dead. Seed in crisis. What's going to happen to the promises of God? And then all of a sudden the Lord intervenes with the birth of Seth. And we have God over and over again entering into these crisis moments and causing his promise to continue. We see it again right before the flood in Genesis 6. The, the wickedness of man is so great in the earth that it's swallowing up the chosen line. 
that there's only eight people left who haven't been corrupted by the seed of the serpent. What's going to happen to the chosen seed, the, the royal family that's going to bring forth the Christ? The Lord sends a flood. He, he, he acts in the midst of this crisis. He sends a flood. He preserves the family. He preserves the seed. Preserves the seed. We see that same theme again when these wives of the patriarchs, they, we, we, we encounter these stories where they're barren. They're barren. Uh, Sarah's barren. Abraham's wife. Uh, Rebecca's barren. Isaac's wife. Why? Because we're supposed to feel that tension that the seed is in jeopardy. The seed is in crisis. And, all, and when the Lord God intervenes, promises of God continue. That same thing is happening in Genesis 38. The seed is in crisis. The seed is in crisis. Think about it. Judah's line is at a standstill. He's been chosen by God. The Christ would come through the line of Judah, but it's at a standstill. He had three sons. Two sons are dead. And his final son is betrothed to a wife that he won't give to her. Standstill. No path Forward. This is seed in crisis. How will the promises of God continue? And what we're going to see this time is that when the Lord God intervenes in this crisis moment, that He can use tremendous, messy human sin to accomplish His purpose. We'll pick it up again in verse 12. Enough time passes, beginning in verse 12, for Tamar to know that Judah is not keeping his word, and so she takes matters into her own hands. The text tells us she dresses like a prostitute, and she poses along the path that she, that she knows that Judah is going to take. And what Tamar does in this passage she takes on the role of a seductress. She, is, she intends, plans intentionally to seduce Judah. Now that role of a seductress, that's important because that's the same role we're going to see another woman play in the very next chapter, Potiphar's wife. She's going to play the role of the seductress. Okay, uh, She's going to attempt to seduce Joseph just as Tamar is attempting to seduce Judah in this passage. And what we have in chapter 38 and chapter 39 is this drastic contrast between uh, Joseph being seduced by Potiphar's wife and fleeing sexual temptation, but Judah being seduced by Tamar and falling into sexual temptation. In verse 16, Judah seizes the opportunity to have illicit Sex to engage in illicit sex. In response to Tamar's question in verse 16, what will you give me? What will you give me? Judah promises, chosen Judah promises to pay for sex with a prostitute. And in the meantime, he doesn't have this goat with him. He leaves Tamar with a pledge. And Tamar gets to pick the pledge. You know, she keeps this until she keeps, um, until she gets her payment. And what Tamar chooses intentionally is his signet, his cord, and his staff. 
And all three of these items served as items of personal identification. And that's why Tamar asked for them. Okay, this was an intentional plot to seduce him, to lie with him, and to take these personal items. Now, what you need to understand is this is the equivalent of a man going to see a prostitute and handing this prostitute his social security card and his bank account routing number. This is basically the equivalent of, of this in the ancient Near East. This is, this is how you enter into contracts in the ancient Near East is with this seal, with this signet. These are personal items of identification. And Judah gives them to her. text tells us that she conceives and then she takes Judah's pledge in verse 19. She conceives and she takes the pledge. And then we fast forward, we're told about three months later in verse 24, about three months later, that Tamar is pregnant from this illicit encounter, okay? This is the Lord weaving and working in the midst of this sinful situation. Just so happens, lady sitting beside on the side of the road, just so happens this one-time act of illicit sex just so happens she's pregnant. Three months later, news makes it back to, to Judah. And his response in verse 24 is shocking for a man who's just committed sexual sin. It's shocking. He's guilty. He finds out she's pregnant. He responds with these words in verse 24 Let her be burned. Burn her. Kill her for what she's done. This is the depths of his hypocritical unrighteousness. And at this moment, Tamar springs her trap. Her shrewd trap. She brings forth the pledge. And she says that the pledge belongs to the father of her child. And I want you to see this. Beginning in verse 25, it's at this point in the story that Judah has been had by Tamar. He's been had. Verse 25, she says, please identify. She's talking about these pledges. Verse 25 and verse 26, Judah identified them. Sounds so simple. Please identify. Judah identified them. Now what's important about this phrase is there's an intentional wordplay parallel back to the previous chapter in chapter 37. Okay, And there's a contrast going on here. In chapter 37, Judah was the deceiver of his father. Remember that plot? They took the many colored coat of Joseph. They dipped it in blood. And in chapter 37, Judah and his brothers come to their father with these same exact words in their mouth. Chapter 37, verse 32, they said, Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Verse 33, and he identified. Please identify, and he identified. This is a literary feature in the Word of God. That the deceiver in chapter 37 is now the deceived in chapter 38. He just got his own medicine. The deceiver just got deceived. He just got had 
by Tamar. Now, if you remember, this happens in the book of Genesis. This happens another time with Jacob the deceiver, the one who deceived his father, pretended to be Esau and stole the blessing. Remember, he woke up the first morning of, uh, after his wedding night to another woman named Leah that Jacob the deceiver had been deceived. Now we see the same thing happening under the providence of God in Genesis 38 that the deceiver is now deceived. He's been owned. He's been, he, he has a taste of his own medicine from Tamar. And what we see in verse 26 is that this humbles Judah. It humbles him. What we have in verse 26 is a confession of Judah's unrighteousness. Listen to this phrase. He responds to this story and he confesses, she is more righteous than I. He confesses that he's an unrighteous man and the way that he's dealt and what he's done. Confession of sin in Genesis 38. And so what we see in, this, in, in the Joseph narrative as Judah's name shows up at several key places Genesis 38 is his descent into sin, but this, this confession of his sin becomes the turning point in the life of Judah. And by the time we get to chapter 44, we're going to see the grace of God transform Judah. That this man who uh, concocted the plan to sell his little brother Joseph into slavery. By the time we get to Genesis 44, he is volunteering to die as Joseph's substitute. He's been transformed by the grace of God. He's been humbled by God. He's been chastised and disciplined by the Lord. This is the very beginning. She is more righteous than I. This is God's work in the midst of this wicked story. And then we come to this strange birth story in that final paragraph in verse 27. And we have another example of a theme running through Genesis. So we need to connect these stories to these themes. And that theme that runs through Genesis so often is the older will serve the younger. This theme of replacement, the one who we thought would inherit... The one who everybody thought would inherit is actually cast aside and an unexpected one is put in their place. This theme of replacement or reversal by God. And this is another account of this same theme, this birth narrative at the end of chapter 38. We're told that twins are in her womb. Twins are in her womb. The only other time that this happens in the Word of God is that story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And behold, twins were in her womb. And we see a very similar story here of this prophetic birth narrative. This, these weird signs that are strange signs happening at the birth of these little babies that are prophetic. They're prophecies. And their meaning is really similar. That there's going to be a reversal. Okay? A reversal of... The order. In verse 28, we're told that the firstborn is about to come out. He's in the birth canal. He, he, his hand is stretched out into this world. And the midwife reaches and ties a scarlet thread around his wrist. 
And then in some remarkable, extraordinary way, this is the prophetic sign. Remarkable and extraordinary. The other child manages to maneuver around his brother in the birth canal and come out before the one who was going to be born first. This is so extraordinary that the midwife is stunned. And this baby earns a name for himself from this prophetic birth narrative. And he earns the name Perez. And that name actually translates breakthrough. This, name, this baby's name is breakthrough. In fact, there's another place in the Old Testament. Uh, a place was named ba- Baal Perez, the Lord of the Breakthrough. And so the, this name marks this uh, extraordinary maneuvering around uh, supernatural sign in the womb as these two sons are born. And then the story ends. And if we don't have uh, the, appro- the appropriate tools to connect this story to the story, the whole storyline of Scripture, we're left scratching our head. I mean, for decades, you're like, okay, two babies. Okay, back to Joseph. That makes more sense. And so we have to remember that this story is not some random birth story. It is not some random birth story of some random baby in the ancient Near East. This child's name, Perez, would show up in two other places in Scripture. And they're both genealogies. This is not the last time we read about Perez. First place we see is in Ruth chapter 4. His name reappears. And it reappears with that Toledoth formula that we've seen in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of Perez. And the word of God begins to track the descent of Perez down through his descendants. And one of the things that you'll see in Ruth 4 is that 10 generations after this little boy, Perez is born in Genesis 38. There's a great king in Israel that arises from his line. And you can see this in Ruth 4. His name is King David. The king after God's own heart. God's chosen king. The king whom God made covenant with. The Davidic covenant. And what this means, I hope you see it, okay? Is that if this story that climaxes in the birth of this baby in Genesis 38 doesn't happen, we don't have King David. If baby Perez is not born in Genesis 38... King David doesn't come later in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 4. These are the generations of Perez. And then the second place that his name shows up in the Word of God is in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of King Jesus. King Jesus. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3, all three of these names show up. And that royal lineage, Judah, Tamar, and Perez. And what that means is that we see that the sovereign grace of God is at work in the midst of this mess. This absolute mess of the Judah and Tamar story. And God chooses. 
Okay? Maybe you can look back and you think, you know, in your family line, man, I'm not so proud of that uncle. You know, like, I'm thankful for this, my grandfather over here, but man, that crazy uncle right there, man, that's a black spot in my family lineage. That's all Jesus had to work with. You understand that? He looks back over his family lineage. Sinner that died. 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 This is all he has to work with. And he enters into this story and he sovereignly works the grace of God. Sovereignly pursues his plan of salvation. You see, the sin in chapter 38 is actually not what should shock us. That's what we should expect, is sinners to sin, to rebel against God. The thing that should absolutely shock us in Genesis 38 is the grace of God in the midst of human sin. That the Lord God, the Holy One, would use this Judah and Tamar story to bring His Holy Son into the world. His willingness to enter into our sins, to work it for our good, is amazing. Amazing grace from God. Shocking, scandalous, amazing, never gets old grace from God. That He's willing to enter into our sin and work it for our good. That's what He did with Judah and Tamar. His grace covered their sin. And they were allowed to stand in the chosen royal lineage of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that this story should do in Genesis 38. It should banish our doubts. When we begin to dare to doubt the limits of the grace of God. What could God possibly do with my life, my sin, my mess? Judah and Tamar should come to mind. And even more than that, Judah and Tamar's God should come to mind. That he comes into this situation, works it for good. The gospel tells us that he's so willing, our God is so willing to enter into our mess that he sent Jesus from the land of light. To dwell in the land of darkness, the incarnation, the humble servant of God, never knew sin, lived in a sin-soaked world. The gospel reminds us that Jesus bowed to the lowest place, death on a cross. And that ought to remind every person in this room, Jesus will not despise sinners He won't. Jesus will not despise sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Not to despise sinners. Not to say you're not clean enough. But to wash you clean. To be your salvation. Do you understand? He came into the world not to call the righteous, but to save sinners like you and me. This is the good news of the gospel. And I want this to be personal this morning. God is not waiting for you today to clean yourself up enough for you to be acceptable to Him. This is, this is a, 
a ridiculous game of religion that you put on your church clothes and your church face and your church speech and then all of a sudden you're clean enough to meet with God. It doesn't work like that. God is not calling you to clean yourself up, to get yourself clean enough to meet with Him. He's coming right in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your ungodliness, and He's calling you to cast all of your sins on the grace of God. On the grace of God. Genesis 38 summons us to give our broken lives to Jesus Christ. That's all we have to give. All we have to bring. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're told in the book of Revelation that there's a coming day where a remnant from all mankind who put their trust in the Lord, they're going to gather around this true and better son of Judah and Tamar. And we're told that in that day, we are going to begin to worship the one true hero of history. And we're going to begin to worship the Lord Jesus with these words. The song in Revelation 5, worthy are you, Lord Jesus. You know why? Because you ransomed us. You paid for our sins with your blood. Translation, Jesus, you came for us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our ungodliness. You came to us, you died for us, you covered our sin, you ransomed us from our sin, you justified the ungodly. And we will sing praise to Jesus Christ for all of eternity as the only righteous one, the only hero. And we'll take our spot right beside Judah and Tamar as the sinners who have been covered by the grace of God. This is the message of Genesis 38. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we lift up our souls to you this morning, God. And we ask, God, that you would use your word and that you would flood our hearts with light and love for Christ today. Lord, be pleased with our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.